and my dad, my dad was done. My dad was done. That was it. That was a straw that broke the camel's back. And he, and I remember on my knees at my parents' house crying. Why can't I just die? Why can't I just die? God has me here and, and he's, I'm cursed. Because dude, like how are my, all my friends fucking dying and dead? And I'm over here giving it my all and I'm fucking keep surviving IEDs, car crashes, numerous car crashes. And dude, trust me, I've used up my nine lives and then some, and I wasn't grateful. And, uh, my dad told me, I'm driving you to San Diego to the VA hospital. I'm going to drop you off there. Don't ever call me again. Pretty much saying you're not my son. You're not my problem. You're the VA's problem now. You will never hear from me again. And with a combination of almost no, not dying, crashing my truck, my dad saying that, my fiance, she was my fiance. My fiance was at her friend's wedding and I didn't go to her friend's wedding because I told her I had to work. And I actually called in sick to go drink at the bars. So she was fucking over me. We get to the VA hospital and thank God my dad didn't leave, dude. Thank God he didn't leave. Because I probably, if he would have left, I probably just would have walked off. Because he wouldn't have been there to visually see me, you know, accountability or integrity. Like I was, you know, I was sick. We go to the emergency room. I don't even know how to do this, man. And there's a freaking lady at the counter. I say, ma'am, I need help. She's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. Every time I drink, something bad happens. That I have bad thoughts in my head. I don't know what's going on. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. Joining me for episode 112 is Hector Bravo. Hector and I sat down to talk about his journey from a troubled kid who eventually became a leader. Hector joined the military after high school to fill the gap until he was old enough to become a cop. But as a young soldier in the army, he was not prepared for the trauma of combat or the transition struggle back to civilian life. He eventually distinguished himself with a 16-year career in the California Department of Corrections and promoted to the rank of lieutenant. Hector's open about his battle with his demons and his resilience, which helped propel him through the ranks of leadership. But on the flip side, seeing the lack of accountability amongst the leaders and administration within CDC is what forced him to take an early retirement. Today, he's a published author and a public speaker, but where he's really growing is in his social media empire. He's that prison guard. So go check him out on YouTube after you finish listening to our conversation. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Here's episode 112. It's this has truly become a passion project of mine. And I am, you know, just fortunate to to have had the opportunity to talk to a lot of really cool people. And the one thing that I will say uh, that I like in the videos of yours and I want to go backwards just a little bit because I know yesterday was a shitty day for uh, you uh, yeah thank you for that i didn't know you had seen that um yeah i'm cool now but you know i mean i don't know if yeah of course you know but like yo bro it's one of my triggers one of my so for those when when this episode actually comes out we're recording on september 11th so this is already is a a horrible day but then 
you know, and we're, I would like to talk a little bit more about yesterday, September 10th for you. Yeah, I'm an open book. Feel free, man. I'm getting chilled. Yeah, like, hey, we'll shoot from the hit or whatever. How you doing? I'm going to just give it to you, man. Cool. We'll give it to you. So to make it easier, let's just kind of, what I like to do is just kind of walk through your whole life. That's so cool. talk to me as a, as a young man. Where are you from? Where's hometown? Brawley, California. Okay. However, I wasn't born there. Where were you born? Hanford, California. It's near Fresno. Yeah, I was going to say that's north. And then you went way far south. My pops was working in the fields up there. You know, he's originally from Brawley. sold my mother. So, you know, field worker, migrant. And then they had me up there. And then I, I came down as a newborn. Only or your parents have other children, brothers, sisters? I have a sister. She's three years younger than me. And I think in one of your videos, I saw your mom had you when she was really young. 15, man. What was that like growing up with a really young mom? Cool. <laughs> cool. I mean, you know, I, you don't, it wasn't until I was maybe 17 until I grasped the concept that my mom was young when she had me, but awesome mom as far as like, Hey, I mean, you look at 15 year olds now and they don't got their stuff together. Yeah. She's definitely working multiple jobs, roof over our heads, food, toys, Nintendo. And then as far as you growing up, were you a good kid? Were you getting into trouble? All right. So I wasn't like the criminal type, but I was mischievous. Okay. If that makes sense. Uh, um, hyper ADD type class clown for sure. Definitely. How were you in school? <laughs> average, average, you know, I'll be honest. I didn't apply myself. I didn't apply myself. It was, uh, School didn't interest me. My friends did playgrounds, recess, activities, but like book studies. Maybe I found science, you know, growing up. Maybe I found science interesting. Right. As far as uh, outside school, were you into sports? No, dude, I'm definitely not athletic. <laughs> definitely not athletic. I got two left feet, man. I can't dance. It's just no, bro. <laughs> so then being mischievous, how'd you stay out of tr like serious trouble? So my dad became a correctional officer in the year 1993. I was nine years old and he kept me in a straight line. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't abusive, but the belt came, came out, uh, the rules came out, it came out. <laughs> and, um, I, I tried, I, you know, it's like, Hey, all, all these kids are wearing baggy pants, you know, the early nineties. I want, I want, these are the type of pants I want to wear. He's like, no, absolutely not. You know, being a kid, it's like, Oh, you just, you don't, you know, you don't want me to be happy. You don't understand this and that. I didn't get it. Now looking back for sure. There's a reason for that. Coming out of high school, what were you thinking was going to be your adulthood? Kind of had that plan set junior year during career day. When the Marine came in, the Marine came into the classroom. Military was not even a thought. And I'm from a small town. There's not much option. There's two prisons down there. There's it's on the border of Mexico, Mexicali. So there's border right. patrol. Um, kind of. Oh, I know as a kid, I wanted to be on the SWAT team for whatever that meant, man. I didn't realize you kind of have to be a police officer first <laughs> and go. You know what I mean? I just right. SWAT team. Um, so I kind of always had that passion or that drive. And then that that um career day the marine came in dressed sharp talking about college traveling everything's paid for and just a light bulb went off dude like boom that's it that's it and i came home and told uh the whole recruiter situation is 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 a is, 
you know, the fiasco in itself. But then after that, it's like, okay, military, I ended up going into the army and then correctional officer. What changed you from Marine Corps to army? So how old was I? Probably 16 and a half, man, you know, seven, 16 and a half at this time. Cause I was still a junior. The year was probably 2001. And I walk right into the Marine Corps recruiter in El Centro. It's in front of the Costco. And I'm like, Hey man, I want to be a Marine. All right, cool. Come back here, kid. Take the practice, practice ASVAB. So I take it and I fail. I fail the practice ASVAB. And he's like, Oh man, go try your luck next door in the army. And I, I remember thinking, damn, I'm too dumb to be a Marine. So I, I kind of walked out with my head down and went to the army. Okay. I knew I wanted to be infantry. <laughs> All right. Right off the bat. You know, I didn't, I didn't want Navy or I didn't want air. If I wanted to be front lines, it's just like that mischievous, that go adrenaline type of chaser and, uh, went to the army. I said, Hey guys, I just came from the Marines and they, I failed the test. I'm like, don't worry about it, kid. Come over here. Take this test. Ours is easier. And you know, they're Marines, I mean, they're, <laughs> you know, they're recruiters. So they're, and I passed it and I, I said, that's it. I guess it's it. Went home, told my sister, Hey, I'm going to join the army. She's, she was, she's always been a supportive of me, no matter what, man, anything I say goes with her and she backs me to the fullest. And that, and that was that how, you know, and that was 16 and a half. 2001 and today's 9-11 the twin towers went down uh i had to take the practice i had to take the asap test a total of three times man because i failed it twice you know i'm not gonna lie right (laughs) you asked me how i was in school you just didn't apply yourself yeah dude it's like you know um and my pops was really trying to talk me out of it really trying to talk me out of it nobody in my family had served like that um I guess he could feel the, the you know, the, the atmosphere with the war coming. I was going to say 9-11 probably really changed a lot of, and I've said this before, a lot of parents started looking at the military different when it's time to send their children off. I could see it now. I could see it. And um, yeah, I remember he tried. He's like, hey, go to college. I'll pay for your college. And I said, dad, why would I go to college? I hate high school <laughs> because I almost didn't pass. I had to do these like, summer schools. I had to do these extra little curricular activities to get the credits to, to pass. And he wasn't even happy about that. He, he always told me, I don't want you to bring home A's, Hector, just pass. And I was barely meeting that, <laughs> that threshold. And I was like, dad, I don't want to go to college. I don't even like high school. Your dad and my dad sound a lot alike. Cause that was my dad. He, he never, my dad didn't go to college. It wasn't like when I was a kid growing up, he was telling me, oh, you need to go to college. You need to, he was just graduate high school. And for me, I just didn't apply myself. I didn't like, like you, I didn't like being there and borderline failed out. I am lucky that finally in my senior year, a new guidance counselor came in and kind of pulled my head out of my ass and said, Hey, you need to straighten yourself up. Right. But I was, I was looking at the military myself. It it was more of like, Hey, you're going to go in the military because there's nothing else really for you. So if anything drove me to pass high school, it was the fact that you needed a high school diploma to go into the military. Technically, now that I think of it, that's the only thing that drove me to pass high school. That's what I wanted. That was a ticket in. So what year did you go? So did you do the delayed entry? So I did delayed entry program, the junior, the year, the summer going into my senior year. So I was pretty much a whole year on the delayed, delayed entry program. How did your mom feel about it? Oh man. <laughs> Just talking to my mom on the whole drive up here, dude. My mom is my mom, bro. I love her. Like it was actually her birthday yesterday. And 
she felt about it probably the same way with my dad just wasn't voicing it in that right. in that manner so your mom is your mom kind of the one who's the silent supporter of you oh no my mom's like my cheerleader yeah and you know to be completely honest being a young knucklehead teenager with hormones or testosterone me and my mom were not seeing eye to eye you know, I held a lot of resentments from being a child. She wouldn't let me watch Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why. And I wanted to do more. I wanted to drink. You know, I, I'm, we'll get into me being an alcoholic. But it's like, I thought my mom was trying to interfere with every fun thing I was trying to do. So at that time, we were not seeing eye to eye. We were not really talking, man. I ended up actually moving out of my house at the age of like 16, 17. Just because you were button heads with your parents so much? No, because they... They told me you can you can stay in our house and follow our rules, or you can get out and go drink and party with your friends. I'm like, all right, cool. Later. That last year, how were you able to keep yourself kind of squared away so that you wouldn't even lose the opportunity to go in the army? Um, living with my buddy, my buddy Jason. His his parents kind of like adopted me in, not like formally, but you know, right. kind of just welcomed me in. My sister would bring canned foods from home or food from from the house from the pad to to feed me and or give me her lunch money that my parents were giving her so that I could eat. Um, and that's kind of how we were managing it. So that last year, did you, I mean, did you keep your nose to the grind though, a sense as, as far as school and, and got through it? Or did you have to go to summer school? Yeah, yeah, I said I had to go to summer school. We would do those day ditch parties where you just ditch. Again, not the criminal type, but more like, Let's go, let's have a big, massive keg party during the day <laughs> while the parents are at work. You right. know, my friend's parents, it's like you, the, the idea of getting away with something, it, it, it like it, it thrilled, it thrilled me. Did it ever get to a point where you considered maybe not going in the military? No. So you were, you were dialed in. You knew you wanted to go. 100, bro, especially when 9-11 hit, the troops were in Afghanistan. When I started seeing news of special forces soldiers dying, it, it was making my blood boil, bro. And I don't know how to explain it. But I felt like that warrior inside of me, like, I got to be there. I'm, I'm missing out. So what, when did you graduate high school? What? 2002. Ju uh, June 2002. And was that when you were scheduled to, or was that would have been a no, year I was, late? I was scheduled to. Okay, so you, my you, mom showed up, too. So, you know, kind of like, you know, we're making peace somewhat. I'm going to be off to the military now. So little, little side note, though. It kind of kind of. Cool story. You went to your mom's high school graduation. Oh, and then yeah, she went. dude. Yeah. Because <laughs> you were. I, I saw one of your videos where yeah. you're talking about how you were three years old at her graduation. Correct. She was pregnant with my sister. And so then she came back around and was at your graduation. Yeah, same field, Brawl Union High School. And how soon were you into boot camp? One month later. One month later, July 22nd, 2002. And when you got in, was it... Was it what you thought it would be, or did you struggle with the rules and, and all of the, the mm -hmm. <laughs> standing attention, all that? So I had long hair. I was a skater. I told you I wasn't athletic, but man, your boy was a skater. <laughs> your boy was a skater with long hair. I was not a pro or an amateur by any means, but I could throw down some tricks. And uh, sh I shaved my head bald prior to going, because kind of common sense tells you you're going to shave your head anyways. I had a girlfriend at the time. Yeah, she gave me hickeys all over my neck, so there I am. Nice going away present. Yeah, man, there I am over there in uh, the Padre Trail Inn in San Diego. So, like, it's what I wanted, and I remember that plane ride from San Diego to Atlanta, feeling homesick, feeling scared, feeling like, damn, like, as a kid, you know, I was a kid, and, and those feelings, 
and it's not like the Marine Corps that I've seen on YouTube when you get when the, the bus touches down, they're screaming in your face, you know, butting you with their hat and the yellow footprints. I was expecting that. Army basic training, Fort Banning, Georgia. The bus arrived. I'm bracing myself, quiet, nothing. We get off, looking around, nothing. That's when I start thinking, like, what the heck? <laughs> Are we in the right spot? Yeah, like, man. So then there's these benches, and they're like, welcome to 30th, 30th AG. It's reception. They in-process you. They dump all your stuff, you know, the tobacco products. We didn't really have cell phones, no stuff, and knives. And this is in-processing. You're going to in-process here before you go down to Sand Hill. That was a whole week or two weeks of getting your shots, getting your BDUs, shaving your head again, <laughs> again. Drill Sergeant making fun of my hickeys, calling me, what's happened to you? A vampire get a hold of you. And I didn't like that. I don't, your boy doesn't like boredom or idle or like, I, I got to do something. So I was, get, we were all getting itchy. Like, what is this? And then, yeah, one day, hey, get your stuff, formation, let's go down. And we marched down to Alpha 254, Hell's Kitchen. And it began. It began like how you would see a normal, get, get your shit off the truck and the duffel bag. And then the, Unrealistic time frames, bro. <laughs> <laughs> 10, 3, 2, 1. <laughs> Unrealistic, and your whole world gets turned upside down. But I remember push, doing push-ups and thinking, yes, this is what I wanted. This is it. So you, 2002, you're in country by what year? February 2004. Okay. I'd like you to walk through your September 10th incident. Because it, it, in listening to you, it's definitely had a huge impact on your life. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, it changed the traje- trajectory of my life, for sure. Um, so if I got there in February, March, probably seven months in country already, maybe six months in country, we had not lost anybody in our platoon. In our company, yes, I didn't even know that guy personally. Um... Because the way they comprised our pl- our company was just a platoon of engineers, combat engineers, a platoon of infantry, a platoon of National Guard infantry from New York, and a platoon of tankers. So we were like a Frankenstein company. And that was September 10th, dude. We were QRF, a quick reaction force. And I'm asleep. Morning time, they wake us up. You know, Feral, Feral, wake up. We just got incoming. By then, it was normal program, man. Incoming was nothing to us and i just remember thinking initially well that's weird i didn't hear it right you, at least you would probably hear it or it would rock you or what's going on but remember thinking it was weird put on my gear feeling sluggish too we didn't know we, i didn't necessarily always feel sluggish i mean it just that whole day was off from the start we get in the humvees we get in the vehicles we go out was the, it weird for you from the get-go or is it weird because now you've had time to look back no and, no it so, was weird from the get-go it was weird from the get-go because I'm telling myself as things are happening, I'm telling myself it's kind of weird, right? Like, I mean, the dude wakes me up and tells me we just got income. I'm like, we just, I didn't hear anything. So that's already a sign. Got it. Then we go past the front gate while I was on FOB Palawada in Balad, Iraq. And my buddy Maldonado from Puerto Rico, he's the front gate guard. And he's just staring. And we're just driving. He's just staring and we're just staring right back at him. And I remember thinking, damn, well, that's weird. Normally it's like, hey, F word, like 
some that's normal thing would be the normal program. This was off. That's weird. So then, you know, now, bro, the whole day was off because as I go into this story, four vehicles. The first one was an up armored Humvee. The second one was an M113 armored personnel carrier. The third vehicle I was a driver was a M998 supply Humvee. And then the last one was an up armored. We get to the T intersection. Oh, so we were going to the point of origin because we got mortared. So we got to go see, check out the area. And over the radio, hey, the last vehicle broke down about a mile back. And they're like, what? And that was out, out of the norm because, like, how would we not notice a vehicle breaking down? I mean, not that when we were patrolling, we were constantly, like, looking behind. Like, Did it actually get separated from your... Oh, it got separated. It got separated. Now, this is a probably... From the FOB to where this incident happened was probably three miles, give or take. Where we were at, the vehicle broke down probably one mile from. So, like, the halfway between the FOB and the, the point of origin. So the lieutenant at the time, um, he was our platoon leader. He made the decision, a feral take your Humvee and go link up with the other hum with the other vehicle. Cool. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it's not, it's only one mile down the road. We're all freaking, we all got combat um, loads. We know the area like the back of our hand, it's our sector. So I, I go over there. I didn't think anything else what they were going to stay there they were going to go i just go over there and i can't even remember which sergeant it was but it was uh the the last one you had a few ing iraqi national guard in there and we're kind of talking it didn't take long because we're talking chopping it up and then we just hear and everybody kind of just like froze followed by gunfire dude and everybody's face and look like what the fuck was that? What is that? Oh shit. Hey, they're getting attacked. They're getting it. You start realizing they went forward. They went, they continued mission. Hey, they're getting attacked. And I remember yelling. And again, dude, I'm always my personality. Like, I'm yelling to the Sergeant. Let's go. Let's go get in the Humvees. Let's go. Cause he, it's not that he was incompetent. Cause he was not, it was just, he was kind of, everybody was processing everything. And I'm like, dude, we got to go now. They're getting attacked. Let's go. And then boom, it click. We load up. You, I heard you say that th this explosion was bigger than anyone you'd ever heard before. <sighs> yeah, dude. I've been, I've been hit personally by an IED. Everybody in my platoon has been hit by more than one IED. When we've been inside the blast, that is so loud that it's not loud. It's like, it sounds like a flat tire to me. Probably, you know, tinnitus and the whole nine. I've been in patrols where another vehicle gets hit, whether the front or the back, and it's an explosion. We look, see the big old cloud of dust, black smoke. This rumbled. This freaking rumbled for a long time. It thundered. I'm telling you, dude, everybody froze like, and then we heard the gunfire. And then when you hear that plus gunfire, it's like, boom, fucking ambush. And going back a little bit, one of the things that you've talked about that good or bad that your unit was doing was when you would get mortar attack, it would vector where it was coming from. And you were guys, your normal operation was go straight to where it was coming from. So they started, we had done it, bro. Our cat, our fob got fired every, uh, indirect fire every day at during the day and or at night. 
rockets, those 120 millimeter Chinese rockets, and or those those mortars, 60 millimeter mortars, or whatever they are. Every day, dude. I'm not even lying about that. So we had that satellite that would track the trajectory of, and it would give us a point of origin. We must have done that. Let me see. We're in country for six months. We got mortared every day. <laughs> Over a hundred times? Go to the point of origin? These Iraqis are not dumb as far as they are very like calculated when it comes to tactics and or like in being intuitive and yeah it, it wasn't hard for them to see what we were doing we actually probably made it easy for them hey every time we mortar them they come out to this location and we kind of probably could have saw it coming i never really said oh it's just a matter of time before we get hit but it's kind of something like oh yeah of course that was bound to happen in, in other words after the fact you wonder how many of the attacks leading up to that were just tests to see if you're going to keep doing your normal you know, SOPs and mount up and go straight to its point of origin. I'll tell you what, man, that changed our game plan after the fact. Yeah, we started doing recon by fire. We started finding IEDs prior to them setting off the mortars. There was, there was nobody present, but we would find the IEDs. Right. And we're like, oh, look, we beat them to the punch. So you were, you were telling your story. You guys got separated. Got separated. We hear that loud thunderous explosion followed by gunfire. Now, I really couldn't make out if it was AK or, or M16 fire. We had M16s. And I couldn't really make out. We get in the Humvee and I kind of knew a shortcut. There's all these kinds of little dirt roads where, it, where I was at. It was like the Tigris River, agriculture, uh, watermelon fields, date trees, grapevines, canal banks, dirt roads, and hauling ass, man, as fast as it was 60 miles per hour on that big old metal piece of junk. And I pull and I see a Humvee. The Humvee is in front of me. And it looks a little different to me. I don't know with my mind playing tricks on me because it wasn't a, it wasn't destroyed. I'm just like, okay, this looks different. It looks a little odd. And I and I pull up like I now do a T to that inner, to that Humvee and I jump out. My TC, my sergeant must have jumped out clearly way before I even stop because he comes around the front of the Humvee and tells me they killed Doc. And I turn to him because mind you, we hadn't lost anybody yet. It hadn't really, the war hadn't really become that real yet. I'm like, what do you mean they killed Doc? And he's like, look, he's right over there. He's dead. And I look, dude, and I see a body on the road. Probably 25 meters away, fairly close, 20 meters. And I just go into tunnel vision, dude, like dark, dude, dark. And then it hit me, dude. Like, like, like it hit me like, like I... And this is how, what I say, I, f I said, it felt like my innocence left me that day because I was up until that day, my whole life, I had been taught good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, period. I had never processed crossed the wires any other way. So I run over there and I look down and I'm standing over his body and he has, he, he has speckles of blood on his face and I don't recognize his face. It doesn't look like doc Edgar Daklon He's from Torrance like 24 years old, man. We were really tight. And I'm like, I start at his face and I'm start scanning down. Like seeing, and then his shin, his shin was exposed. And I really, I recently just started saying this part of it, you know, out of like respect for his family and whatnot. It's, it's been 20 years. And, and I, and I remember looking, I didn't even stop to like check his nothing like that, man. They told me he was dead. He looked dead. He wasn't moving. 
But then instantly it's like, I got to continue mission, man. This whole area is not secured. Right. There's vehicles about coming down this, this, these, this road from this side. And then the Humvee that was there, you had the Lieutenant sitting in the passenger seat. The door was open and he's holding up his knee like that. And I look at the bottom of, and he's like, he's like, I look at the bottom of his boot, his bottom of his boot was shredded. You can see the bottom, you can see it's like ground beef. And then I see O'Neill. He was a probably PFC or specialist. He was in the, he was in the gunner in the, on the SAR 240. He had his back. I mean, my buddy Hinks, he was a driver. So there was three people in that vehicle. They did end up continuing mission. They parked right next to that IED surface level on amount, an amount of dirt. The insurgent waited till Doc got out. And Doc was a medic, bro. Medics aren't supposed to be doing this kind of stuff. But Doc, that was him leading from the front. Like, we, get, we gave him, like, we blessed him. Like, hey, you're a grunt just like us, bro. Because we take pride in that. Like, you're an infantryman, dude. And he stepped in front of the Humvee, and that's when the dude detonated it. And when it detonated, Doc got blown away. O'Neill had his back of his head facing the ID, so a piece of shrapnel pierced pierced his, his Kevlar, his helmet, pierced his skull, you know, got touched his brain. He goes down, but the Lieutenant was standing outside of the Humvee. So whatever shrapnel came up from underneath the Humvee shredded the bottom of his feet. So the Lieutenant's holding his foot. He looks to be all right for, for the most part. O'Neill is getting his head bandaged by Hinks. Hey, Hinks is solid, man. Hinks is doing what he has to do. Now, a security, right? Stop these cars. And I mentioned that I didn't want no cars coming for two reasons. One, the very high threat of car bombs, V-bids, very high threat. And I didn't want them to see my friend's body on the road. I didn't want them to see that as a trophy. So uh, the first vehicle comes, I shoot over it, warning shots, it turns around it immediately and turns around. The other one was a white truck that kept coming. I did the same thing that I did to the first car. Shoot over it, but it kept coming. Fuck, so... This is what I forgot to say yesterday, man. I shot the ground. I shot the ground in front of it. Skipped off some rounds with my M16. Still kept coming. Then I shot the engine area. Still kept coming. So then I could see there's one driver, no passenger, right? This thing is coming. So I just started lighting up the passenger window, putting rounds in there. So then I'm faced with like a split success, a split decision. Like I have to kill this guy. Am I going to kill this guy? Should I kill this guy? Because you, war is gray. War is extremely gray. Why is there a car coming down the road when I'm shooting at him? Right. <laughs> you know, anybody in the right state of mind would stop or turn around or. But by then, by that time, man, it was too late. That vehicle was up on me. And I didn't realize, but my buddy, my buddy, um, what was his name? Osborne was actually on, on an elevated position, like on a 240. And he said he was yelling at me to get out of the way, get out of the way. Cause he was going to light that truck up, but I didn't even hear dude with all the commotion going on. And I didn't get out of the way. So he couldn't shoot cause I was in the way. So we, in, we were so upset. We broke the window. We took him out kind of like, you know, talk some sense into him as to, you know, why would you do this? Threw him back in the car. And I remember Hinks yelling, Hey, did you shoot him Farrell? I'm like, no, like I was, I was mad. No, threw him in there, and then he he <laughs> turned around slow. He was like an 85-year-old man, dude. I'm not even kidding. Shouldn't have been on the road at all, and then drove off. 
So then weeks, my just buddy, never registered rounds coming at him, hitting his car or not. just, or there's just so many, probably there's probably so many cars there. I would imagine that get hit by stray rounds. It's just another day, another day in the life. He's just an old guy oblivious to what was happening. Maybe his senses were not all working, his right. hearing, his vision. It, it, it's just, he was just an old guy. Like when we saw his age, we're like, oh, dude, no wonder you didn't fucking stop. Like, damn, bro, you almost got killed. And that haunted me. Not pulling the trigger haunted me because I, I felt I had, what if, I, what if they all go to blown up? Then it would have been my fucking fault. I would have been dead too, but that's, that really haunted me. Um, my buddy Weeks shows up and it's like, okay, now we have sufficient, right? We were limited. We were limited with, with troops out there, with soldiers. So it's like, okay, I got my buddy Weeks, man. Let's go chase the wire. Let's go trace the wire, which was a copper wire for the command detonated IED. So, and man, experience will tell you the IED blew up here, should go down the line, right? Follow. Sometimes they would get tricky with it and like stake, put a stake in the ground and then go like an L. So we're there. We don't know if there's any bad guys out there still or how many or anything clearing. And then we, we come to the end of the wire on the Tigris river. We, we position ourselves like where he would have been. We look, fuck man. You can still see the Humvee there. Like this dude had a clear line of sight. Like we look to our right, there's a village. So you start playing the tape as an insurgent. How did he see it? How did he do it? Detonated. He waited till man. And that's another thing I remember thinking this dude was patient. This dude was freaking patient. He didn't jump the gun and he didn't, when the Humvee pulled up, he didn't detonate it. He waited till doc got out and, and stepped in front of that Humvee. So I'm thinking all these thoughts now. And he ran into the village as soon as they detonated. So we go back to the Humvee because I remember thinking I was more the, the other QRF or who the more troops are going to be coming. I don't want to get shot out here. I'm in the wood line. Like I'm in the fields. And, uh, by then you yeah, had dude, the tankers had came out like the higher ranking people came out. I told you it was only probably three miles from the fob. All the radio traffic is going through and I remember hearing a nine line medevac being called. I could see my sergeant like with the, on the horn, like he had the handheld, like the radio. And he's like, everybody just has that look on their face. And, um, the engineers came out, the platoon sergeant for the engineers came out. He would eventually get killed. And, um, later on or in this same 17 days later, 17 days later. And, um, now the next step is to medevac these guys. Like we had already bandaged the wounded, cleared the area. Now the medevac. So I pop red smoke. And when I, when I, when I threw the smoke, I kind of gave it like a little soft toss and it didn't go where I wanted it to. So I run over there and I pick it up. I didn't realize, dude, it was burning hot. It was like thermite, but it was burning extremely hot. So it burned me and I, it, it fell out of my hand. I'm like, ah, so I kind of go off into the field just adjacent to these vehicles. And then I'm in shock, bro. I mean, I don't know that I'm in shock, but clearly I'm in shock and the helicopter is coming down and I'm standing straight up, man. Your boy is standing straight up, rigged, like, and then that's when Sergeant Villanueva, Sergeant first class Villanueva gets me, puts his, I don't even know where he came from, puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, Hey, take a knee, man. You're doing good. You're doing good. Farrell. Like you're doing what you're supposed to do, man. Just, breathe and just like 
and then it kind of you know it gives you that calming feeling now he was a he was a gulf war veteran and he had already received a purple heart in the beginning of that deployment and then uh the bird lands when it lands i get up and now we got to start loading bodies and they're on stretchers or stoke litters and i honestly can't remember who i grabbed or what but we start loading bodies and I look on the ground and I see vomit. I see throw up. And I remember another, like, like a, like a photograph moment. Like, oh, that's weird. The hell? Like, can this get any more weird, you know? And then um, I remember looking at the, 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 med- the medic from the medevac, like, locking eyes with them. Like, I don't, like, wanting to say thank you. Like, wanting to say, like, please take care of them. Just, like, something like that. And, and then they're off, dude. And then it's like, okay, fuck, like, now we got to tow the vehicles back. And then I looked to where Doc's body was, and then there was this puddle of blood, man, this pool, this pool of blood that was black in color and and chunky and thick, extremely thick. And I've never seen anything like that, man. The only person I had ever seen dead was my grandma at her funeral, and she died of cancer. She was like 60-something years old. This was like a whole nother animal, dude. So one of the sergeants goes over there and starts like pouring water bottle over to get to get the mess out of the way, putting dirt, we're covering it up, we're covering it up. And then we start returning to base and by then the villagers that came out and they were lined up on the side of the road and I'm like, hatred burning in my heart, bro. Hatred in my veins, in my heart, in, in my soul, dude. I'm like, I want these people dead. And then we get back to the fob you know, I get back to the fob and I'm crying and it's like, damn, damn, dude. And then the platoon comes together and everybody just has their head down. Everybody's like, damn, dude, like we just got our asses kicked because doc, dude, doc, that, that sucked for so many reasons, man, because a, he was a medic. Medics aren't supposed to die at all. And I was a grunt. I remember thinking, take me, fuck, I'm expendable, man. Take, I'll switch spots right now. For so many years, decades, I, I wanted to trade spots. It's like, in a, come on, dude, I'll do it in a heartbeat. He, he was a nice guy. He was a gentleman. He was like a, a leader. He was buff, man. He was Filipino, and he was buff, dude. He used to work at GNC before, and uh, young, 24. He's from California. I'm from California. Uh Real quick, I want to share the why I, I liked him so much and how we met. How we met, we, we were training in Germany. And I bought this stupid Rambo knife that came with a compass. You know, those like cheap things that you, you know, you say, sell them at the PX, like these, they're more of a novelty than anything. <laughs> I buy this big giant Rambo knife and I'm right there messing around in Hohenfeld in the training and I cut my hand. I slice my hand, right? And I'm like, Ugh. so he had just become our medic in our platoon. Reason being is because the previous medic, Refused to fire his weapon during a live fire training exercise. And our platoon sergeant like, get out of here. I don't want you. Hey, replace him. And they replaced him with Doc. <laughs> Jacklon. That's what we got. So I remember like, ah, oh, Doc. Like, he's like, I remember him like, hey, man. Because he had that voice, like a kind of a high pitch. Hey, you got to be careful, man. <laughs> he's like managing me up. He's such a great person. Like a good hearted individual. And then boom, that's kind of like. Love at first sight, you know, like dude bandaging my hand, telling me be careful, stupid Rambo knife. So yeah, they uh they do that ceremony. 
you said your unit had up to that point had not lost anybody, but you had also not seen anybody killed in combat to that point, well, even I, from a different unit. Enemy KIA, a lot so, of enemy KIA. No U.S. No fellow soldiers or anything, huh? Mm-mm. So that had to be huge for you at 18 years old, 18 and a half, 19, 19 years old, 19. Yeah, dude, nobody up, nobody up until that point had even been wounded. It, it came afterwards. Right. Don't, yeah, it came afterward, but up until that point, I mean, war was scary. It was real, but it wasn't like that real, like real, real. You start thinking like, I'm not untouchable. I remember thinking that I'm not untouchable. Um, you know, as a young kid, I thought I was invincible. I remember thinking there's a high probability I'm going to get killed here. Um, it just becomes a whole nother real element to it where I've heard a lot of previous veterans, combat veterans say that you have to come to terms with your own death in order to function. And that's exactly what I did. I told myself, you're already dead. You're already going to die. What, what does it matter? Do what you got to do. That ended, ended up screwing me up when I got home because I still had that mindset. I didn't expect to live. How many months at that point did you have left on the deployment? It was a halfway marker out of a 13-month deployment. Oh, I forgot to say, man, it was my mom's birthday, dude, at the end of it. So we come back, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, damn, it's my mom's birthday. And I told, it's just like, oh, whoa, man. So what that is, that became a moral injury because I learned about PTSD and then I learned about moral injuries. Moral injury cuts deeper than PTSD. It's like, hey, my moral beliefs were that, again, good things happen to good people. But here, something horribly bad happened to a great person. And that, it changed the trajectory of my life, dude. So you de that deployment ended when? March of 2005. We were there for the first elections. And so, March, you're back here in the States, or where were you stationed at? Germany. Germany. Schweinfurt, Germany. When did you actually get back, what I'll say is home, to the United States? Like, over and done with? Well, no, just... Uh, shortly after we touched down in Germany, got our stuff together, and then a 30-day leave to home. And how much time at that point did you have left on your enlistment? Three months. Two and three months. And did you know at that time you were done? You were getting out? Yes, because part of the original plan was to do my three years in the army. That was my contract, three years, to kill the time between 17 and 21 so that I can become a peace officer. Minimum age is 21. So that, that incident, losing Doc, just further drove home. There's no chance I'm staying and I'm reenlisting. Or did you ever, ever even was, consider it? It wasn't his death that, it wasn't his death that, reenlisting was not, in the cards and it made me think like, why didn't I ever go for Ranger? Why didn't I ever go for special forces green beret? Because again, that wasn't my, that wasn't in my cards. My cards was to do three years and get out. Had I maybe had a plan of make a career out of it or maybe pursue that type of stuff, I would have prepared myself and or went down that path. Our platoon got disbanded from our company before we deployed to Iraq. We got attached to tankers. That left a bad taste in everybody's mouth, man. We got thrown to the wolves. We were like the bastard children of the company. Nobody from my platoon, second platoon, re-enlisted when we got back. 
to Germany. We were the misfits, man. A lot of people started smoking dope in the barracks. I didn't at that time because I wanted to pursue law enforcement. But a lot of guys are smoking dope, got busted down to E-nothing, E-1s, didn't re-enlist, were going AWOL. And the first sergeant was a hard ass. The dude was a badass. But he felt so sorry for us that he was in a predicament like, So you get out 2005, five, and how soon were you already testing for law enforcement? No, no. What ended up happening when you first got out and what were you thinking was going to be that carryover until you got hired as a cop? I was lost, dude. I was lost. Mentally, I was lost. Uh, emotionally, spiritually, I was lost, bro. I was, it was a, it was a dark, dark, dark time in my life. I remember my parents picking me up from the San Diego airport, driving down the eight freeway. I'm sitting in the back seat and I just start crying, crying. I'm like, Fuck. anxiety. I didn't, I didn't know what anxiety was. The, 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 the title with the symptoms, I, I thought I was having like losing my, my mind or something. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I, this isn't cool, man. I don't, feel, I don't feel happy that I'm back home and Doc didn't make it back. I don't feel good. I'm not happy. Like, I don't want to be here. My, I can't tell my parents what happened. I felt like an alien, dude. I felt like an alien. And that's when that all began. Well, my drinking took a horrible turn for the worse when I got back from Iraq and into Germany. I'm talking about blackout drunk, a fifth of vodka a night. I couldn't tell the difference between whether I was dreaming or awake. It was that bad. It was like, like what, hallucinations almost. But it was trying to dull the dull the pain inside. Self medicate. And again, I didn't know what that was. That I just thought, hey, you're young. You were in Iraq for a year. Guess what? You owe this to yourself. You got a party. You have to catch up for the year. That's what my mindset was. Any other other guys in your unit talking? openly about how they were feeling or was everybody kind of doing the same thing basically just trying to kill the pain with alcohol so right before we left iraq they had a female nurse or something psych nurse or something and she's like had their list of questions and everybody had lined up have you ever seen an enemy kia no have you ever seen a friendly kia no have you ever seen a wounded civilian no have you ever shot anybody no and the reason we were all answering no is we just want to get out of there. And we didn't want no bad, bad marks in our file that were, you know, frowned upon. And I'm, I'm assuming that they didn't really push it. Oh no. They're bro. like, <laughs> they said, no, no they bro, said, no. no, no, it was 2005. It was the awareness was not there. When did you, when did it become apparent to you that, well, this is a, this is a really big question. Cause I know a little bit more of your backstory and how long it took you. When did you recognize that, all right, I'm intentionally trying to bury this with alcohol as opposed to maybe I need to go get some help outside of alcohol? So, dude, it was self-destruction all the way, a million miles per hour, as hard as I can hit it for a year. Guaranteed for a year daily. Um even though you still wanted to try to get hired as a cop, you were, you still realized looking back on it, you're like, screw it. This is what I'm doing. That's kind of the same mentality. My dad had, he found weed in the trash can. He, he, when I left out of town, you know, I was kind of, they kicked me, they eventually kicked me out of the house again. 
And I had a party, not even a party, just a couple people over. There was weed there. And tell you the truth, man, I never really, yeah, I would occasionally smoke weed. It was kind of, I was just, whatever. Whatever's clever, I'll do it. You got some, okay, cool. Let's just keep doing stuff. You were primarily alcohol. Primarily alcohol. I smoked meth. I smoked meth. When I got back, I had a big, massive party at my house. I knew that my neighbor was a meth addict. And I told him, I want something. I want something. That's kind of how I just told him. And he's like, you want to stay up for days or you want to stay up for hours? So I don't know, whatever, man, just give me whatever. And he went to give me whatever he got. And when he came back, chopped, we crushed it up and I snorted it. It was meth. It would look like, well, I know what meth is now. And I snorted it. Oh yeah, I was up. Um, and then it's kind of one of those things. You've already done it once. You've already done it once. What did you know, like, I can't take it back. I mean, what, why stop now? Then you'd be eventually smoking meth. And that's the thing, man. I was collecting unemployment. I was collecting unemployment from the army, which is, I forgot how much money they were giving me. Probably $600 every two weeks. Buying drugs. I didn't even have to buy drugs. It was just probably where I'm from. There's so much drugs, bro. Like. There's so much drugs and like people might say, oh, there's drugs everywhere or maybe there's not that much. When you're in that circle or you're in that crowd, it's fucking limitless. You don't even have to have money to get high. And, um, you know, to be completely honest with you, and I'm not proud of this. I just have to tell you how bad it was is I used primarily alcohol. My drug of choice is alcohol. I'm an alcoholic. But I would drink... (laughs) Somebody would break out some coke, do a few lines, drink, start coming down a little bit, or I didn't like where I was at. Hey, let's do some meth. Start smoking meth. Boom. That shit would take me too high. I mean, I was suffering from PTSD, anxiety, freaking I'm on three drugs, two drugs, alcohol. And um, I was at, hey, where's the weed at, right? And the smoke weed. Because I kind of knew uppers and downers. I wasn't right. smart enough to realize an upper and a downer. Hey, bring me down. But that would, it would bring me down with the paranoia and the, the feeling. Like I said, I never liked any of this. I was addicted. Uh, alcoholic. And, um, so that, you were just riding a roller coaster every single day of your life. It was a roller coaster from hell, man. Every single day. For sure, the whole year 2005. Like, I can tell you when I stopped using drugs. I, can, I stopped using drugs the day that I took my written examination for the Department of Corrections. Just like that. Just like that. The same way that I stopped smoking weed when I went off to basic training prior. You know, I was smoking a little bit of weed. I'm not a drug guy, bro. Like, that's not, you're not, I'll say another thing that's the truth. I never did drugs sober. I was always drunk when I did drugs. So was the Department of Corrections the only agency you tested with? So back to that original question, you know, my father, man, my dad seeing me, my dad seeing me go, they don't know what the hell is going on. They know that this kid, this guy right here is not the kid that left, is not our son. Um, he said something one time, he's like, hey man, plenty of people go to war and none of them came back fucked up like you. And that cut deep. I don't resent him for that. I don't hold him to that. He just is a lack of knowledge, mm-hmm. absolute lack of knowledge in that, but that made me feel worse, man. Um, and he's like, Hey, go apply. 
So he found that weed in the trash can. That's what I was talking about. He's like, you want to be a police? You want to be a correctional officer? You're smoking weed? I'm like, Dad, I don't even smoke. I said, would I have thrown away half the weed if I would really liked weed? Because it was, I threw away about half the bag of weed. He's like, I don't know what's wrong with you, man. I don't know what to, what's wrong, why you're on this path of destruction. You're trying to kill yourself and this and that. Like, you know, I wasn't purposely trying it, but I was very doing everything else to try to. He's like, go apply at Maricopa County, Arizona Corrections or Police Officer. I'm not going to Maricopa County. I don't even know where that's at. It was like Riverside PD had an examination. I signed up. It was at Camp Pendleton. During this turbulent time in my life, I drove to Camp Pendleton. I couldn't find the spot. I missed the deadline, the timeline. I'm like, oh, I was highly upset. I had anger issues, rage. I went and bought a 40, and then just the cycle kept continuing, kept continuing, kept continuing. I eventually found myself in jail, dude. Imperial County Jail. We did a beer run. I was in there for one whole week, man. General population. Again, I'm not a criminal. Well, yeah, that was a criminal act, right? But my intent was just to drink more beer. And on the payphone, my dad's like, hey, you just got the letter for Department of Corrections to go test? I don't even think you can get in right now with what you have going on. That was his exact words. Hung up the phone. The following day, I got released. The following day after that, I tested in Rancho Cucamonga for the California Department of Corrections. Two months after that. Hoping that the county and the state aren't talking. <laughs> well, weren't you, weren't you hooked at, at the, you were in the county jail, right? County jail, but any law enforcement will do a thorough background. Right. No, I know. I you just... have to disclose because it's not, it's called omitting or it's omitting. So yeah, I put that down. I put, I will spend a week in county jail. There's a spot for that. So the background investigator like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. What <laughs> the heck? And I'm like, you know, stressed to the nine, nine military, still have my military bearing. I mean. I wasn't a complete shit bag, man. I still have morals, discipline, ethics, just fucking going through it. And I said, hey, sir, I could explain that. He's like, yeah, go ahead. Please. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I got out of the military. I was hanging with the wrong crowd. You know, that was a kind of a, I was purposely hanging out with the wrong, wrong crowd, you know. He's like, hey, they did a beer run, unbeknownst to me, because I was sitting in the back seat. And um, I went, I got caught up. I no longer talked to those individuals. This is what I want to do. And he's like, you look like a good kid. I'll give you a chance. The dude gave me a chance, bro. So I told you I stopped doing drugs, but I still drank alcohol. But you were off long enough that you didn't hit on the, the urinalysis for yeah, the, I know the, I know all the time periods. Now go, you, you made a comment just now you were hanging, you were purposely hanging out with the wrong people. But when you got back, did you completely separate yourself from, all the people that you had met while being in the army or did you stay in contact with them or was nobody local to you? Nobody was local. Cell phones weren't as prevalent as they are now. There was no FaceTime. There was no Zoom, WhatsApp, nothing, man. Everybody, my friends got stop lost. My friends got stop lost, went back to Baghdad for 18 months. So they, this is another thing that sucks, man. I told you about Doc, right? Everybody knows about Doc. But nobody knows about the other seven that continue to die, continue to die, continue to die. And I kept getting word. I would just do more coke, more drugs. And it was killing me, dude. These were my brothers in my platoon that I had served with. You know, some had gone on to other platoons. Some had gone on to other units. We're getting shot in the head by fucking snipers. We're getting definitely blown up by IEDs. And it was just like, fuck, when is it going to end? And they just kept dying, dude. And it was just... I remember, I remember where I was at when the who got killed 
And I remember saying, hey, give me some Coke. And again, it wasn't to, hey, give me some Coke because I'm self-medicating. It was, fuck this, man. I feel like shit right now. I need to f- do something. This, this is going to be a weird question because obviously we're looking back with 10 years you know, in the rearview mirror. But at 22 years old, did you ever think to yourself like, man, I need to talk to somebody about how I'm feeling? Nope. My exact thought process, my exact thought process was, I'm not going to talk to a doctor, an old man, because they never been to war, they never killed nobody, and they never saw their friends die. There's nothing they can fucking tell me that I need to hear. What about from, I know you said you did, you, because we're talking a different era, and I think for a lot of people who aren't old enough to remember, like you said, cell phones, the whole connected way of life today, non-existent. 10 years ago was completely different, but was there anybody who, did you know anybody oh, who had been in the military oh, okay, who'd so be like, hey. Man, I'm glad. Wow, it's like you pried this freaking question out of me, bro. So check this out, man. Cool. I'm glad you brought this up. I had a Tundra. I bought myself a 2005 Tundra as my little prize from Iraq, which I would eventually total down the line, but we'll get there. <laughs> I put a CIB sticker on the back, combat infantry badge. I'm pretty proud of my military service. I'm pretty proud of being a grunt. Big ass CIB in the back of the truck, right? I'm upstairs. Damn, I can't believe you pulled this question out of me, bro. Like, I'm upstairs having one of my episodes. Freaking either high, half high, drunk, half drunk, you know, sitting upstairs in the chair. And I hear my mom open the door downstairs at her house. And, and I hear her say, yeah, that's my son. That's my son. Hold on. Let me go get him. So I go downstairs and who it was, was it was a former army ranger who lived down the street who saw my CIB. He took it upon himself to knock on the door and, in, and, and ask who CIB that was. And, oh, uh, bro, I look like shit. I was, I look like shit. And my mom told him, can you help him? Uh, can you, you know, there's something wrong with him or, and, uh, the dude was going through his own demons too. And I was too. And, uh, he pulls me outside. He's like, Hey, that's your truck, man. I like your CIB. Where you near where you, and we start chopping it up. And he kind of, no, not kind of, he did his best to tell me, hey man, what we went through, ain't nobody else experienced what, uh, when we drink, the demons come out. He's like, there's demons in that bottle. I remember he was saying, and, and I remember hearing this stuff. It's not that he was trying to get me sober. It was more like he was trying to, like a little brother type of, hey man, get your shit together while I'm still trying to get my shit together. But that was that was the most, that was, uh, and a couple times my mom out of desperation reached out to that guy when I was like crying or in my moments and he would come over and, and we would like sit there and I would cry to him. Did you know him before you went in? No, the dude, the dude showed up to my front door cause he saw the CIB sticker. So even though he lived down the, did he, do you, what I'm getting at is, did he live down the street before you went in to your knowledge? Never knew the guy. He wasn't did, even local. Did you, did, did talking to him help? Did you find that that was in your mind, somebody I could relate to and, and you were taking what he was saying in the right way, or was it kind of going in one ear and out the other? I have five army brothers that live in the Phoenix, Arizona area. From time to time, I would make a drive out to Arizona or Phoenix and meet up with them. 
Now, without realizing it, I found that that did help. I found that I felt comfortable around them. I felt that I felt invincible around them. Like, hey, ain't nothing going to happen to us. Because we're going to, you know, back each other up to the end. We know this already. We've already proven it. And we sit there and we tell stories. We laugh. Yeah, that was a real, those were feel-good moments. But again, through consuming alcohol, uh, we never, we would tear up. We would tear up, but nothing, nothing, um, like over the board, but yeah, those, if you're talking about moments like that, yeah, that is as close to as therapy or treatment <laughs> that one would get in 2005 without actually being formal. Two questions I have, and then I want to move into your, your corrections career. You mentioned the morning of September 10th, 2004, leaving the wire. Mm-hmm. Your partner from Puerto Rico was working the gate mm-hmm. and he even had a look on his face that morning before anything happened that it was weird. Have you ever gone back and sat down and talked to him and what his mindset was that day? Not Maldonado's. I've talked to Hinks. I've talked to O'Neill, Dino. My son. Uh, I've talked to all these brothers, but not Maldonado. I never just kind of maybe that personal space out of respect. Not, um, did everybody, everybody else that you did talk to though, did they feel it was a weird day yeah. from the get go? Mm-hmm. Hink said it. Hink said that every day he rolled down with his window down and he did. It's just one thing you always observe. He said something told him, roll your window up. At that T intersection, some, a voice told him, roll your window. He rolled it up. And he, he remembers thinking, that's weird. Right. And shrapnel definitely hit that freaking window, bro. Definitely hit that window. Said another weird thing was that Doc said, told the lieutenant, this isn't a good idea. We shouldn't continue forward. And that Hinks was like, the hell? I'm telling you, dude, it's just, I don't know if the universe or the signs or the power, I don't know what, dude, everything was off. Even think about it, even a Humvee breaking down back, when would the hell? That was not normal. And it's that thing though, of, you know, hindsight's 2020. You could look back on that day and, and do this checklist of this was wrong. This was, <laughs> but I mean, it was, I know that it was the, combat. You had, you had shit to do. <laughs> I know that uh, I'm pretty sure the Lieutenant beats himself up or be, beat himself up about making that decision. But Hey, that, that is war. Absolutely war. There is no other way you could flip a coin and make any outcome, any other different. If it's going to fucking happen, it's going to happen. And the other thing I wanted to go down, you mentioned that there was a, a group of your platoon who actually got redeployed and, yes. and they kept dying. Yes. Did you experience anybody taking their own life? King, Jeffrey King, and this happened four years ago, three, four, either three, four or five years ago. And what sucked, man, is that I remember thinking to myself, it was around Memorial Day. I remember thinking like, hey, it's Memorial Day. I don't, because some Memorial Days hit different than others for me. So some September 10th hit different, harder and less than. And I remember telling myself, this was a good Memorial Day. And shortly afterwards, King killed himself. And he had, uh, he had got wounded in, in, Iraq, medically discharged, but he was a lifer in his head. He had that whole contract. He was passionate about the military. So I could just imagine the demons he faced when now you got medically discharged and your trigger finger got blown off. His trigger, he was a saw gunner. And it's like, he never displayed like that he was going to do that. We talked. Fuck man. And King was another good like fucking brother. Well, when it, and the thing that a lot of people can't understand is for somebody like him, the day he signed on the dotted line, he was signing 
his career. He was looking long term. No and, doubt. And it got taken from him. No doubt. And and how do you get that back? It was too much for him. And I see that. I see that. I don't in any of these dudes, I don't blame them. I don't judge them. I see exactly why things why the, the pain, the hurt. Well, that's one of the reasons why for this podcast, why I want as many of my guests who have who have gone through different experiences to talk about it. Because the thing is, is that every one of you experienced something different, but when you tell your story, it's going to sound different coming from you than coming from me. And you're going to hit that one set of ears who's going to hear something and say, I need to do A, I need to do B, you know, kind of deal. With that, I'd like to jump forward a little bit. What was your rock bottom date as far as your addictions and what got you out of it? So to kind of go back to the question I think you were asking me is, hey, did I ever want to reach out for help? No, I was too stubborn, too hard-headed. I was a Mexican, man. The whole machismo thing. I'm a, like alpha male. I was a soldier. You're not going to ask for help. That's a sign of weakness. That's pathetic. Like, you kidding me? You can't handle your own problems. I like, get your shit together, bro. That was the mindset. That was the culture in in society, how about that was perceived by the majority of us. So there was no way. Not to throw anybody under the bus. Was that actually said out loud by other members of your platoon when you were going through this? Like while you were still in country? In country? Or deployed while you were, you know, so, uh, those, those uh, last few months of that deployment. I'll tell you something. Um, okay. In 2003, Saddam Hussein got captured. Me and my best man, we're like, we're brothers. We watch Saddam Hussein on the news get captured. We are drunk and shit-faced. We are highly upset. We're yelling at the TV. Fuck, our war's over. We missed our opportunity to go to war. What's the point? You know, we signed up for nothing, and we're irate. We got pictures of it. We're flipping out. We remember that day. Fast forward to the very end of our deployment. I mean, we had weeks to go home. We were out on patrol. Some Iraqi car got shot up. Dude got hit in the head, brains everywhere. It was Iraqi on Iraqi tribes, Sunni and Shiite. Brains on the dude, dude's dead. It's in the morning time. Me and my best man are sitting on a canal bank, 6.30 a.m. And I say, damn, bro, remember we were in Germany and we were yelling at the TV because this is what we wanted. We wanted war. And look at us. And he's like, fuck, bro, I know, man. I know, dude, I just want to get out of here. I said, me too, man. I just... I, and then he said, do you think when we go back home, we're going to be messed up? Do you think we're going to have like Viet Vietnam stuff or um, Gulf War syndrome? And this is what, exactly what I told him. Nah, bro, we're good. We're good, dude. Like, look, this dude's brains are fucking right here. We're chilling. And all I can think about is going and getting some fucking breakfast and hoping that the defects open. And he's like, oh, yeah, dude, I'm fucking hungry. Perfectly normal conversation. But look at that now. That was not normal. Everything felt so normal then. It didn't feel wrong. It didn't feel hyper vigilant. It was the norm. It was our new norm. You hit the nail on the head. For those of us and not been in combat, but as a first responder and, and seeing to that, you have to figure out a way to deal with it at that moment. At that moment, you've got to be able to see the blood and the brains and move through and push through and keep doing your job. The problem is, is that 
when it's all said and done, we need to normalize that it's okay to go Correct. talk to somebody and say, hey, the, the Rubik's Cube between my ears, I can't figure out the puzzle. I need some help. We've come a long way. As a nation, we've come a long way. I'm proud of everybody, the, the um, awareness. But um, everything makes sense, bro. We do that as a survival mechanism. We do that to fight another day. We do that to survive. There's no way in hell you can break down and try to analyze your thoughts. Oh, I don't see it happening. Like, you know, you're in the war. You're in the combat. You're in the fight. It, 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 your switch is on. I don't see how one can be turning on and off their switch in war. If we ever get to that place, and then maybe that would be a good time. I don't know how that could work. But nobody taught us how to turn off that switch when we came home. Well, the crazy thing is, so I've talked to a couple who have done the, the ayahuasca and the psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And and I asked, I said, would that be good to, to go through that procedure mm -hmm. midway through a career, halfway, whatever? And it, the response was no, because when it's time to kick a door, I can't be thinking about unicorns Correct. and roses and fields of, of flowers. I need to be thinking of demons and bad people when right. I kick the door. Give me that when I'm about to exit out and then send me on my way, hopefully a little bit better. I, I worked in correction for 20 years or 16 years. 16 years. I think it is appropriate and safe to do it in that type of setting because you are actually coming home to your wife and kids. Correct. And it, think of it as a valve that you're like releasing that pressure, releasing that bad energy. If you have it bottled up for 20 year career, you're going to freaking explode or implode and it's going to be all bad. But in a situation like that, yeah, by all means, absolutely go seek help. And I'll, I'll dive into that when I, when I finally broke it down to hit my bottom, but yeah, seek help. So the day I hit my bottom was 10, 31, 10 Halloween night. Totaled my truck, 80 miles per hour. It's a miracle I didn't die, really. Didn't even, I did get one little tiny superficial scratch. I fled the scene. The cops were looking for me. The CHP was looking for me. They called my job. The watch commander, hey, do you know where Officer Farrell is? He was involved in a felony hit and run. Dude destroyed all kinds of property. And... um they're like, fuck, Hector's at it again, right? Because I kind of had a couple little run-ins. And my dad, my dad was done. My dad was done. That was it. That was a straw that broke the camel's back. And he, and I remember on my knees at my parents' house crying, why can't I just die? Why can't I just die? God has me here and, and he's, I'm cursed. Because, dude, like, how are my, all my friends fucking dying and dead? And I'm over here giving it my all. And I'm fucking keep surviving IEDs, car crashes, numerous car crashes. And dude, trust me, I've used up my nine lives and then some. And I wasn't grateful. And uh, my dad told me, I'm driving you to San Diego, to the VA hospital. I'm going to drop you off there. Don't ever call me again. Pretty much saying you're not my son. You're not my problem. You're the VA's problem now. You will never hear from me again. And with a combination of almost no one coming not dying, crashing my truck, my dad saying that, my fiance, she was my fiance, my fiance was at her friend's wedding 
and I didn't go to her friend's wedding because I told her I had to work. And I actually called in sick to go drink at the bars. So she was fucking over me. We get to the VA hospital, and thank God my dad didn't leave, dude. Thank God he didn't leave. Because I probably, if he would have left, I probably just would have walked off. Because he wouldn't have been there to visually see me, you know, accountability or integrity. Like, I was, you know, I was sick. We go to the emergency room. I don't even know how to do this, man. And there's a freaking lady at the counter. I say, ma'am, I need help. She's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. Every time I drink, something bad happens. That I have bad thoughts in my head. I don't know what's going on. She's like, she was nice. She's like, okay, have a seat. We'll see you right now. We go to first time going to the VA that, that time. No, man, I gave it a few couple shots and you know, those horror, horror stories from back in the day. That's what I'll say. Anybody out there do not give up on the VA, man. Keep going back. Your experience will be different every time you go back or ask to speak to somebody else. I kind of had just, you know, got a couple bad incidents and just kind of gave up on them. But clearly I went back a third time. And they tell me, you would be a good candidate to go upstairs. There's a couple people like you who will get you the help that you need. I'm like, all right, cool. So they put me in a gown. They put me in a wheelchair. And it was a psych ward, dude. I didn't know it was a psych ward. But I kind of looking around. I'm like, what the? F- oh, no, nah, man. And uh, while this is happening simultaneously, my dad went back to the prison. He got a couple people that he knew. And, per- and personally went to the warden and said, my son needs help for alcoholism. Can he, you know, are you going to fire him? Or can you give him another chance? And the warden, you know, God bless him, said, yeah, we'll let him go get his treatment. We'll put it as vacation time so nobody knows. And dude, when I was in that psych ward sitting there, that was my bottom. The whole thing was my bottom. You see how my bottom, I was bottoming, bottoming out. I'm sitting on the bed and I'm thinking, this is where my alcohol, alcohol has led me. A fucking psych ward. Like, dude, like, the fuck? So they have this slip and it says, what do you want? What kind of services do you want to get here? Religious services. And one of them said Alcoholics Anonymous AA meeting. Bro, even then I didn't know I was a... <laughs> I was like, well, I think I might have a problem with alcohol <laughs> and I'm locked in here. I'm not going anywhere. So I got the little pencil and I checked the little thing and I submitted it. The next day they're like, Hector, come here. AA meeting. First AA meeting ever in my whole entire life, bro. I would have never been well. I would have never done it on my own. Like that was not for me. So I thought, and it was a panel, just a panel with three individuals and they shared their story. The dude had 12 years of sobriety at the time. He, the story he told was identical to mine. Drinking, getting in trouble, fights, the whole nine. And, and it clicked, bro. Oh, my God. I'm not the only one like this. Oh, my. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. Because my grandpa is or was an alcoholic. I'm like, it all, it all, like, it, it, it became apparent what was happening. So while this time they're like, Hey man, you would be a good candidate for our rehab our 28 day inpatient rehab for alcoholism. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. Because that, that was my bottom. When you, when you, when a dude hits their absolute bottom, I'll take it all. Give it to me. They would have said, Hector, stand on your fucking head over there for two hours. You're going to get better. Your boy would have been in the handstand over there. I was that the gift of desperation as they call it. The last house on the block, as they say. And that was it, man. 
since the year 2010, since the psych ward, the rehab, I have been treating my alcoholism and my mental illness, post-traumatic stress disorder, simultaneously hard from the gate. Oh man, and that was a whole nother monster in itself because here I had to do the treatment and relive all the experiences sober. Dry, clean, sober. Oof, that was rough, but I'm here to tell people that it's definitely possible and that's what had to happen for me to get through the trauma. It had to. I couldn't be drunk or I couldn't have... A, it, it wouldn't have been possible. Something that I've had a lot of people tell me is... So you step into the VA, you step in and you ask for help because you're using all of these illegal or alcohol substances. They get you off that, but then they put you on a cocktail of legal meds. And, and I've had people tell me, it's like they, they put me on this laundry list of all of these legal medications and I end up in more of a fog than when I was just drinking. Did that happen to you? I was aware of that. I was aware of, as soon as I got into the psych ward, this Marine dude came up to me that don't get them, don't, don't take the pills that they're going to take off for you. And, they, and I was like, cool, I'm not going to take no pills. And boy, they were trying to shove them down my throat. Hey, do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want, I'm like, nope, nope, no, thank you. No, I'm cool. And yeah, bro, they, they did it. They, they said, hey man, these are some pills. I said, no, right? Cause I wanted sobriety. I was freaking done. And it got to the point where I yelled at them, put in my notes, never to ask me again to take pills. And they're like, copy, Roger, we got it. We're tracking. They put it in their notes. And I'll keep it real with you. For eight years, eight years of sobriety, I still had anxiety. I still had those triggers were really hard. I was still suffering from PTSD. And, you know, attending my AA meetings, there's some Vietnam veterans in there. And I hold veterans in high, uh, Vietnam veterans in high respects and regards. And they were played a massive role in my recovery. And one of them told me like, Hey man, I'm on my, I'm on some medication like for this. It's okay. Like it's helped me. Like don't listen to what other people say like this. And I had never considered it until I gave it a good honest eight years. And still some, what happens is your brain gets rewired different with all the fight or flight and the fear and yeah, dude, I, I, I told the doctor, like, I'm ready. Like, what do you guys, what are some options? Bang, bang, bang. And then they kind of told me like, hey, Hector, when you have heartburn, you take Prevacid. You have a headache, you take, well, this, they're, they're beta blockers or neural alpha blockers. And yeah, dude, I started taking that. And it did the trick. With my sobriety, clean as a sober, taking that, it, 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 it brought me to normal dude i don't feel foggy i don't feel groggy i don't feel weird or woozy just i don't i'm not hyper vigilant i'm not like dude it was bad bro so yeah that's the truth how often are you still talking to a therapist or a counselor i've kind of I, it's been a it's been a minute bro it's been a minute my wife keeps saying hey you need to talk to somebody you need to talk to somebody i've utilized the vet and cri veterans crisis line four times approximately I was going to the vet center a lot, but then they kind of cut me off there. Cause that, that therapist went, he left the spot, but it's in the works, bro. I just got to, you know, put my foot on the pedal. Have you thought about doing any of the psychedelics? No, 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 because I'm sober. Like I don't, I don't not, I'm done, bro. I'm done. I know that it works with some people. 
No, dude. Absolutely not. The only thing I would say is having now spoken to several guests who have done it, I would, I would at least just talk to them, you know, and I can put you in contact with a few of them. Just, just see what they have to say. You I, know, to, I don't even, if I, if I break an arm, I ain't going to take what they give me. No Vicodin, no nothing, dude. Like, <laughs> and I see both sides of the coin. Like you said, you know, I don't want to take anything. I want to be clear of all of this. I want to be not in a fog. But then like the doctor explained, there's sometimes, hey, when you got a headache, you take a Tylenol. Right. You know, there are some things that can, it, where I was going with it is, it seems like sometimes what they do is they just immediately go, okay, you're, you're, you're feeling this way. It's, it's a hundred miles an hour over on this side. So what we're going to do is we're going to go a hundred miles an hour the opposite way. Take all these, Yeah, they, you know, that, that is true. And, and that I think is where, you know, some of the, some of the guys and women really struggle because that is true. They ask for help and then they end up on this, this cocktail of yep. drugs that they still don't feel right. Correct. That is true. I met I met thousands of dudes like that. And then eventually they wing themselves off, right? Or they, it becomes too bad. They're like for a quick cold turkey and they're going through the shakes, even Percocet or Vicodin, they give it out like candy, like, like it's nothing. Yeah. That, that is their go-to for sure. That's their go-to. Let's get back to you and Department of Corrections. So what year did you start with them? 2006. And how'd you find that transition from kind of, you know, struggling alcohol, Mm -hmm. not really, you know, not really having a direction and then really having to dial it in. When your boy dials it in, dials it in. It's kind of like being in garrison in the military and then being out in the field. I was a shit bag in garrison, but in the field, that's where I shine. Right. Um, I had my new girlfriend, which is my wife now. The day after I graduated the academy, we went on our first date. It's been on and cracking ever since. So I was doing the thing. I we got an apartment in San Diego. I relocated. So I had to commute out to the prison. So I had the girl. I had the house. I had that truck at the time. And I had the career. It looked like, it looked like I was doing it. But I had demons. And when I drank, they came out. And my girlfriend experienced that. She saw it. It wasn't pretty. And from 2006, I said 2010 is when I hit my bottom. That's four years. It was, it was manageable. Like I did get a DUI in 2009. So you can see kind of the sequence. You can see 2006, 2009. I managed to stay out of trouble while I was in the military. I was afraid of getting disciplined or probably getting beat up by my sergeants or (laughs) throwing in the brig. You know, that's kind of some serious consequences. So it kind of kept me on the straight and narrow. Or maybe my alcoholism didn't progress to the absolute worst till it included the PTSD. And it was, it was literally like throwing gasoline on a fire, dude. Literally. So prison is a violent place. You have riots. That's where I shine. Like some guys are calm in the storm. And I never realized that I was one of those guys. It took me years it took me years to realize, like, damn, I'm really good at this. Like, when everything's haywire and fucking chaos, like, it's like nothing to me. I can see clarity. I've heard it referred to for the, the guys who work the prisons. You're doing time almost like the convicts. Mm-hmm. How did that weigh on you as far as your mental health? I had my girlfriend. I would get to come home. I had the beach in San Diego. I would get to come home. 
I somewhat stayed in shape boxing. So I had my outlets. I didn't view it at that time as doing time. I was new. So it's not, I didn't have the experience. I didn't have, I wasn't salty yet. So I was very well aware that I was going in through prison gates and that they were hated us. They did hate. At that time, there was a big, a big conflict. You know, there was a very clear line between staff members and inmates. And their rules are, if one goes, everybody goes. You're going to get jumped by 200 dudes. I'm street smart, so I know how to talk. Like, I was young, so I got tested. For sure I got tested. Um, that part in that beginning wasn't bad to me. It wasn't until it progressed, and I would promote up the ranks and experience other BS where it got real, real bad. The when you say it got real, real bad, so it was, it was more your what you experienced from our side or your side of the house in the sense of admin and that type stuff. Everything changed, man. Laws on the streets started to change. Laws inside the prison started to change rules. And it's almost like, hey, man, I wasn't a super cop or a crime fighter, but I do. I did get a thrill of like stopping bad behavior or, you know, uh, hey, there's some drugs there. Oh, I caught some drugs. You kind of feel like a DA agent, even <laughs> though I'm not. I'm a prison guard, but hey, if I'm beta bus, guys, you get that little rush, right? Um, it's like little bindles of heroin. <laughs> 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 yeah. Little tiny rocks. And they're like, nothing, dude. But, you know, that gives a kid hope. Like, hey, you're doing something good. You know, you don't know no better. Um, but... It changed just as it did out on the streets, public perception, um, lawsuits, lawsuits changed the dynamics of the prison. So they, we were here at one point, you know, maybe the, the older officers were off the hook to a certain degree. And then we just went, we went nuts, bro. Haywire to the other side. But then the administration took the cake, took the cake by far. You ask any prison guard or you ask any correctional staff member who's, who gives you the biggest headache staff or the inmates. I'm telling you right now, bro, they're going to say staff. They're going to say staff for its own political gossiping, backstabbing, all of that, throwing people under the bus, rumors, lies, just dude, it's, I don't know, you ever watch Game of Thrones? It is like that, bro. <laughs> it is cutthroat. It, it's, it's sad when you say that though, you know, cause you could, you could probably talk to anybody in this country and go. Prisons like Game of Thrones, and they're gonna think the, the violence of the inmates. Yeah. And you're like, no, it's it's the people that have my back. Since I've been doing my thing for the last nine months, people have their eyes are open, bro. They know it's the truth, and um, nobody would have ever have, have ever known had I not come out and said it like I've said it. So you made it 16 years. 16. You got to the rank of lieutenant. Lieutenant. When did you, when did it start creeping in your head that, Hey, I'm not going to do a career or, Hey, I need to get out of here. There were these little milestones that would give me second wins. Promoting a sergeant gave me a second win. Promoting to Lieutenant gave me a second win. Getting on the crisis response team, which is equivalent to a SWAT team gave me second win. Becoming a hostage negotiator gave me a second win. Becoming an instructor for the staff members, teaching them policy, teaching them tactics. It was all, right? These were all just little milestones that were just giving me that extra drive, giving me that extra purpose. 
But I bit off more than you can chew, you could say, because as a result of that, I, be, I got two high, high priority positions. The public information officer, which is a guy that speaks into a microphone wearing a suit in front of everybody, the warden's right-hand man, and the crisis response team commander, which now you're in charge of this freaking tactical team. Like, man, that's a very important position. But I got to sit with the big wigs behind closed doors. You know, I was naive. I was naive to think that these guys didn't know better and were making bad choices. Oh, bro, they, they're on board with the, uh, they're on board. Something about military or uh, it, dude, is that ethics, man? Like human value or human life, that's priority. I don't know how else you can put like a title over that or a rank or a position. These people are not wired correctly. They got their priorities wrong. Um, COVID hit. COVID was a freaking nightmare at that prison during that time. There was an incompetent captain. He was buddies with the warden. As a result of that incompetent captain, he befriended a Mexican mafia member. Listen to what I just said. A captain befriended buddies, a Mexican mafia member. We saw this train wreck waiting to happen months in advance, and we, there was nothing we could do to stop this train. Ultimately, it resulted in two officers getting almost stabbed to death. Bad, bro. They got hit with their own batons, their face were broken, stab wounds. One, they didn't hold that captain accountable. Two, they swept it under the rug. And that's me seeing that at the highest levels of the department. It disgusted me, bro. It, it said, no, thank you, man. No, thank you. Coupled with having a brand new daughter. Everything, all the signs were aligning like you got to do something. When you decided, all right, um, instead of just keeping your head down, because you could do 20 and retire, right? That's the thing, man. I'm very good at keeping my head down. I'm very good at maneuvering. It got to the point where I couldn't. I, there was no, it's everywhere, everything you did, everywhere you went, you were going to get caught. Inadvertently, you were going to get caught. So you've got your own company today. Yeah. What I'm where I'm going with this is when you saw your roller coaster ride coming to an end, you're like, hey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stick it out and get a retirement out of this. I'm gonna I'm gonna pop smoke and jump. Did you have plans for what you were gonna do? One year. I planned out one year prior. Started an L an LLC, my own company, did all my research, started a brand. Started an Instagram page, which is my current one, under my middle name, Bravo. That's my middle name. My last name's Farrell. The reason I did that is to keep myself under the radar because I was still employed. As soon as one person catches wind of that, they're going to sabotage me, bro. That's the environment. It's like the crabs in a bucket environment. Everybody wants to see you do good, but nobody wants to see you doing better than them. Mm -hmm. I knew that. I'm not dumb. I'm, I knew that. My department retaliates and harasses people. I knew they, they were going to get me for something. They were going to make something up. So I, I, <laughs> I did a YouTube channel under an alias, the current one. And it kind of just 
I was able, how much I was able to do this for four months, build my little build, like my little start. And then I can't remember what it was, but it sparked, bro. It freaking sparked and it wildfire, just like I knew it would. And, and they caught wind and I told my wife, the clock has started. She's like, what do you mean? Cause my wife, you have to understand, bro, my visions, people can't see my visions and, and I'm hyper. So like. To my parents, to my wife, they thought I lost my damn mind. <laughs> then, oh, we're gonna lose the house. We're gonna, our kids are gonna go. You know, our kids gonna starve to death. No, man, I'm, I'll never fucking starve. And <laughs> I ended up doing a podcast on my friend's podcast, the Hot Mike. I knew I was gonna resign. I didn't know when. I knew it was gonna be soon. I will never get anybody in trouble. Never, bro. Not no. So I knew. Keep this dude in line. Keep this dude within the markers. He did kind of, kind of veer a little bit times. I was, you know, snatch him verbally. Get back. I'm leaving. You're not. He got in trouble. Well, they went under investigation for that podcast. And one day I went to work, December 1st. There was three coworkers in there and they kind of cornered me. They're like, why are you doing this now, bro? Why are you doing this now? Starting their BS. Throughout the whole time you were quiet during the, when it was really, really bad. I'm like, hold up, bro. You know, I wasn't quiet. You got, I CC'd you in all my emails. I blind CC'd you. I forwarded you everything that I was telling the higher ups to pretty much fuck off. And you guys are idiots. They knew it was the truth. And, um, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what, man? I don't have to take this. I don't have to take, like, I'm done, man. I'm freaking done. Like, I don't have to explain anything to you. I'm not trying to prove anything to nobody. I went across the way and I typed up my letter of resignation, walked it up to the warden who I knew when he was a sergeant. I said, here's, <laughs> here's my letter of resignation, sir. Very professional. He's like, uh, good luck. Shook my hand. He didn't say, oh, what? You're quitting. Oh, what can we do to keep you? He knew what time it was. He knew the writing on the wall. You talked about starting your YouTube page. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of your videos and, and you're not, the thing that I respect is, you're just kind of telling stories about life in the prisons, but you don't throw anybody under the bus. It's not like anybody can really come at you and go, Hey, you shouldn't have said a, B or C when you, when they first found out though, did they try to just make you stop 100% or would they say, Hey, you can do it, but you can only do this. When I did my interview on my friend's podcast, I have friends at the prison. I was at that was in the investigative unit. And they gave me the heads up. They said, just so you know, the warden gave us an order to review the whole entire podcast and find any policy violations or see if there's any policy violations. I said, yeah, there's plenty. All at the higher up chain of command. <laughs> but, you know, that's not their get down. Uh, so he's like, don't trip, man. We watched the whole thing. You didn't say nothing out of pocket. Because I didn't, bro. I didn't say the title warden. I didn't, bro, I'm <laughs> calculated, <laughs> man. I don't mean to sound sarcastic, but you're PIO. You understand how to play the media game. Yeah, dude. I, I know what can get me in trouble or not. If I blatantly say a, a location, a title, a person's name, I'm done, bro. Like, I'm not going to give them that. That's another thing. I wanted to walk out on my own terms. I wanted to walk out with my chin up, my shoulders back out the front door like a professional, like a silent professional. Just, this is it, man. Uh -uh. This is it. Was it scary? Was it risky? Oh, 100. Oh, my God, bro. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, dude. So 
I didn't, I beat them to the punch, bro. They're not, they're not sharp, man. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They're not sharp. I, I out chess boarded them big time and I could see how they probably thought, how the hell did this happen? Because look what I did. I, I straight did it. A lieutenant walked away with a plan and just exposed them. Well, I think that for a lot of us in the first responder communities, especially with you, because you were four years from retirement, correct? Um, no. So you're assuming 20 years. Were you under purge? You had to be 50? 50. Oh, okay. 50. So I had 12 more. Okay. Years. Okay. So I but did. E- but even still, you put in well, a you put in a big chunk at 16 years to mm-hmm. just you know have the courage and the conviction of what is more important to you to say my ethics are more important to me I'm going to walk away and I'm going to leave those 16 years in my past I, I am going to collect I'm going to collect when I turn 50 Oh you will get it Yeah I went to Calpers one week before I pulled the trigger just to make sure I, I said run my numbers you know yeah just to make sure that was probably one of the final steps i did everything was already boom and I, the lady was right there she showed me my numbers and i'm like oh man that's beautiful because i promoted i'm content with that and then at that point it, it it was ready for go time when i pulled that trigger i came home i told my wife i quit oh she lost her mind <laughs> she lost her damn mind she wanted to like divorce me she wanted to like leave like she She's like, what have you done? I said, I told you. My father-in-law, her dad was over at my house a couple months prior to me resigning. I said, hey, sir, this is what I'm thinking about doing. That's, that's his daughter. That's his granddaughter. I said, hey, man, if, you, if it makes you happy, if you know what you're doing, by all means. That's all I needed, bro. I got his blessings. He trusted me with his daughter and with his granddaughter. So I'm like feel everything was cool man with the exception of my wife and my parents but come on man i'm a fucking rebellious dude (laughs) tell me what to do (laughs) so was your plan then to make the social media your avenue or the tactical and and training aspect initially tactical training because of my background fucking running and gunning since the age of 17 it's like second nature to me However, I didn't really take into consideration California ain't the best gun-friendly state, man. <laughs> nobody can have no guns except the bad guys here, the criminals. So, and plus all the Navy SEALs have overly saturated that field, man. I don't have the title Navy SEALs, so it, 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 I realized like, oh man. You know, because I do got to earn a living after the department. So what, what am I good at? I'm good at shooting. My passion about shooting? Shooting? No, but I'm really good at it. So make an adjustment, right? Fire on the, make an adjustment on the move. All right, what are you passionate about, Hector? Well, I'm passionate about recovery, sobriety, leadership, right? Ethics, integrity, and, mor- and morals. And I just so happened to work for the California Department of Correction for 16 years. And nobody f- had really done that yet. And when I came out, it was like, here, here I am. And it, 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 it hit, dude. It hit. Now, what kind of space did you have to put yourself in to start marketing? I mean, how'd you get your name out there as far as your leadership training and what you were offering? Um, This is cool because I haven't talked about this up until this part. This is cool, man. So Torment Tactical. Torment Tactical is the name that I came up with because I was a skater. And I made a little skate crew back in the day. It was Torment. Torment, that was us, man. My (laughs) friends now like, hey, bro, make a Torment video of us. I'm like, I got you. Don't trip. So... Torment tactical, boom. 
But then I, I met up with some entrepreneurs, some millionaires, and they're like, the fuck is Torment Tactical, bro? Like, I said, well, Hector Bravo. They're like, dude, that name's fucking badass, bro. I'm like, well, it is my middle name. They're like, change your shit right now. Right? Because they're the fucking experts. They're in this. They've been doing this. So on my Instagram, I changed it from Torment Tactical to Hector Bravo, and it's been like that ever since. And that's kind of my brand it's it's just me i'm i'm raw i'm authentic and people like that like i'm not dude i have shitty days i mean you saw yesterday was a fucking horrible day and um the reason i do that is because i allow myself to go back into that dark hole to try to help people come out that are still in there so i have to go back in and get and guide people out and that's what i'm passionate about because I, I know the pain, I know the confusion, the hurt, being in that hole. I wanted to die, dude. And now I don't. I, yeah. When was the first time you got the opportunity to help somebody else who was in that pit? Um, I've had, I've been blessed. I was a wounded warrior mentor, peer mentor, with the actual Wounded Warrior Project. I got to travel to Phoenix. I got to go on Project Odysseys and speak and tell them my story. I've had the opportunity every year. I take a, a thank you card to the rehab that I went to and I write, thank you. I got this much years now. So I'll be taking a 13 year one in October. Hey, this is where my journey started. I want to thank you guys. You guys are actually changing lives here. Then I said one, one of the guys that said, here's my number. If you ever need me to speak to these guys, I will. And I've done that. I've gone back to the same rehab, same place I sat and I tell them my story. Like, dude, this, this program works. Like there's help out here. Take advantage of this. And it gets through them. Cause something about like people like me or alcoholics, I think that you, you take something to heart if somebody else has been through it. And I appreciate you sharing, sharing your story. And that was one of the things I was saying when we first started talking, I watched your video yesterday, you mm -hmm. know, and, and for anybody who wants to go back and watch it, you know, you break down and the thing that for me that I think is important to get across is there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with admitting that you're not right inside and, and stuff doesn't sit right. What I, from the concern side, I wonder when you now put yourself back in that situation and you're now talking to somebody about what they're going through, do you feel like it pulls you back in a little bit into your own or you, or does it actually help you stay out of your pit? I have a, I have a sponsor and he said like, Hey man, you got to make sure that your, 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 your being your mental health is in check. Cause imagine if you're in a boat, somebody's drowning, you don't want them to pull you overboard because that almost, that happened to me early in sobriety. One of my buddies, that was a Marine. We used to drink hard and party and I fell too much I was trying to help him too much. And he was, it was bringing me down. And I, I caught it at that. It was like year three of my sobriety. You know, I wanted to save the world. <laughs> hey, Hector got sober. I'm going to show you how to do it, guys. <laughs> but not everybody is, everybody has their own journey. And yeah, so no, it doesn't. It, I'll tell you what, it drains me. It drains me, man. Imagine batteries that are fucking drained. After this podcast, I'm going to be drained, right? Because I'm pouring it all out and it, it drains me. But <laughs> nothing a good day, a night of sleep or an exercise. But it's a good type of drain, bro. I don't know how else to say, explain it. It's not. Uh, it, what do you, how do you call it when you're, you're fulfilling, you're living your passion, you're living your dream, your purpose. I'm living my purpose. When I was on my knees begging God, why can't I die? Why do you have me here? This is it, dude. 
this right here, this moment, everything that's happened, being exposed to the corruption in the Department of Corrections, leaving YouTube, Instagram, podcasts. This is it, man. My goal is to help people. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there, and I do not mean this lightheartedly, because you're out there and because you're opening your heart and your hands and and telling them, hey, I'm here to help you. They are going to benefit from you. They are going to benefit from you 100%. What's long-term future for you? Yeah, I get DMs, bro. I get DMs. Thank you. Thank you for what you do, man. You've, I've, I've got this much days of sobriety, this much weeks. This much, I, I see a lot. What you guys don't see, there's a lot behind the scenes. And I try to show you guys as much. You know, I'm transparent. But there, that, that gives me fuel, like filling up my gas tank. And I tell them, oh, bro, by you telling me that, it's like you're giving me that extra refilling me. Long term? I can do this forever. You know, they say find a job you like and you never have to work a day in your life. I can help people forever. You know, I'm, and I'm not asking for anything in return. This is 100%. I'm ha- I want to help people. You mentioned at the front end you wrote a book. Tell mm-hmm. me about the book you wrote. What's it about? Operation Yard Recall. Before I left the department, I told one friend towards the tail end, I'm going to quit, man. He's like, hey, if you do, before you leave, write a book. Everything you mentor us, everything you teach us off to the side or during training like all right and this is all experience that i've gathered from all the veteran ceos and stuff like that so i can't take the credit of making you know i'm not the prison guru but i did put experiences that i experienced in the prison and you don't have to be a correctional officer to to buy the book it has integrity leadership respect communication skills and pretty much how to conduct yourself like a professional, like a man or a woman and a person of honor. And like I said, that comes from Doc, man. That comes from Daclon, Beha, Herndon, Beckard, Soto, King. All comes from your old man. My pops too? Yeah, like that. My pops is a respectable, quiet guy. Like he's an OG. But like you even mentioned early on, you know, it, you didn't see it at the time. He was keeping you, you were running right on the line, but he was keep. <laughs> Keeping you from falling over that line. Correct. Yeah. That's the truth. Um, the book, when you wrote it, did it, did you, did you enjoy the writing process? Did it come easy for you? Probably took like a year, probably took like eight months of on and off. One day I called in sick from work. I went to little Italy. I got a coffee and for eight hours I grinded, bro. But that was towards the tail end while I was about to be discovered. <laughs> and that was a long day. Um, I enjoyed that hard work of that part, uh, self-publishing it by myself on Amazon. It, I, I, I don't get too high when the highs are high, and I don't get too lows when the lows are low. I used to. I have done it. Every, every, every lesson in life, I've learned the hard way. So yeah, bro, I used to ride roller coaster with fucking emotions. I go, you know, ah, <laughs> like an immature person, but nah, man, even kill. I'm aware. I see. Okay. Uh, this is what I did. My parents thought it was awesome. My sister thought it was awesome. My friends like, holy, my army buddies. Holy shit, bro. You published a book. <laughs> holy, you were, you were an idiot. And you <laughs> Hector Bravo published a book, you know, but it's kind of that we laughing, but, uh, it's an accomplishment. Well, cool. So people can find it on Amazon. Amazon. I'll throw the title and Ooh. a link to it in the show notes. Appreciate that, dude. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Good luck with everything going forward. Thank you, brother. Likewise.
thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.